I've asked you not to whistle that annoying tune. Everybody and welcome to Simpsons is Greater Than, a podcast where we take a look at the cultural impact of everybody's favorite nuclear family, the Simpsons. As always, I'm your host, Warren, also known as Bart of Darkness. You may know me from my Simpsons collection on Instagram and Twitter. Be honest, it's great, isn't it? Go ahead and say it's great if you want to. But if you have no idea who I am, I really appreciate you checking out the podcast today. It really does mean a lot. Today's episode is Bill Oakley, and chances are Bill has written some of your favorite episodes of The Simpsons, so if for some reason you have no idea who Bill is, you should probably make a note to look into him as soon as this is done, so yeah, I'll give you a second, go ahead. Did you make a note? Fantastic. Now, I want to let you know that this was originally a live interview over on my Instagram, so as soon as this is done, head on over there at Bart of Darkness and check it out. Let me know what you think. There's a whole other segment that you obviously can't see while listening to this episode. This episode is also sponsored by the Short Box Podcast, a comic book and pop culture podcast hosted by some of my good friends, one of which, Botter, I could not have made this podcast without. So if you could just go give Botter some love, I would really, really appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. Hey, there he is. Good morning. Good morning, Bill. (laughs) How's it going? It's going pretty well, all things considered, although I'm in Portland, which is not nearly as crazed as um, the media has made it out to be. Uh, But you can read about that on Twitter. (laughs) We're not here to talk about that. You're right. Nah, man, I'm I'm glad you're I'm glad you're safe. Uh, I'm glad there's no no huge issues for you there. No, I'm I'm in Florida, so I can relate. Uh, Yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Right on. Well, I think uh, you can hear me okay. Everything sounds good on your end. Yes, and I got that stuff we talked about. I got some stuff to show, um, awesome. all that stuff, and I have about an hour, so uh, we can perfect. do whatever you want. That is perfect. That's perfect. Well, uh, so anyone who didn't watch my last video, what we normally do, um, I'm going to ask Bill some questions. We're going to sort of hang out, and then at the end, we'll do what I like to call show and tell, and I'll show some weird stuff. Bill will show some stuff that he has, and we'll sort of talk about it, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a blast. Excellent. It's going to be fun. Uh, so right off the rip, I want to say a huge thank you to you, Bill, for doing this. Um, it's huge as you want to do this for the fans and hang out with someone like me and uh, talk about, you know, stuff that you've done in your career, uh, your your vast career. And uh, that means a lot, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's not over yet. My career is not <laughs> over yet. I still no. have a few more years in me, I hope. Absolutely. Well, I want to say, um, so I binged all of Close Enough in one day, um, which is, you know, it's not a ton of episodes, but I watched it all in one shot. I couldn't turn it off. Super, super funny. So anyone who hasn't heard about that, um, it's a show that Bill worked on that just got added to HBO Max, and it was it's super, super funny. So I want to know, what can you tell me about working on that show? How was that? You know, it's interesting. I worked on that show four and a half years ago. Like, wow. that show had a long a long life, a long development life. And like both, I've worked with J.G. Quintel a couple times. Like I worked with him 
um, in the very earliest days of regular show to help him turn it from like those shorts into a show. And then I did the same thing with Close Enough. Um, me and and his and his team. And uh, this was all in the early days when he had just made it up. And it was still called, um, it was called Splitting Rent at that time. Uh, and they had sold it to TBS. And so we worked for a long time on, I think I worked there for about five months. And it was all virtual, like online, because I was in Portland. And we like made up the whole thing. Like the series is, it's pretty similar to what, um, what you saw, uh, except that like it was, it was still, it was a 22 minute show. Like it was a half hour show. And like now sometimes those shows are like, they're 11 minutes. And I actually think it works better in that format. Anyway, it's a great, it was, it's a great, it's just crazy. The show is, it's, it's a, it's basically kind of the same standard JG Quintel brilliance, um, but with a more domestic setting than in regular show. Yeah, it's it's so funny. And, and I'll be honest, I actually, regular show sort of wasn't on my radar for whatever reason. I never sat down and watched it. And I have been since finishing Close Enough. And immediately I noticed, I said, oh, I had no idea that Bill worked on on regular show. I had no idea. So now I really feel like an idiot for sleeping on it for uh, so long. <laughs> That's okay. It was I only worked there for like a month. You know, that was like yeah. just as helping him as me and him kind of uh, helping him make up the first couple episodes. It's it's great though. It's a great show. And and close enough again, uh anyone who hasn't watched it, get HBO Max and watch it. It's uh is delightful. I laughed as hard at that as I've laughed, laughed at anything in a really long time. It was it was great. Yeah, it's good. Um so, you know, we'll we'll get into the Simpsons in a minute, but uh you know, you also I wanted to talk about this. You also created a a show with your writing partner Josh uh called Mission Hill and I know that there's been some buzz um about a potential spin-off of that that you guys have sort of been kicking around. What can you tell me about that and what sort of made that idea come about? Well, we'd always been trying to bring Mission Hill back and there'd been like a, a talk about making it into a comic book or a series of comic books. And um, then it's some, the idea just occurred to me like last October, or November, I was like, wait a minute, you know, Gus and Wally were always kind of our favorite characters to write for. And it just popped into my head. It's like, hey, what about making a show that was, had more Gus and Wally in it? So like, it's still basically the same show. Pardon me, I'm going to sneeze in a second here. You're good. <laughs> I'm going to make you wait. <laughs> good. See, that's the um, live content you can expect from uh, the Bart of Darkness channel. I like that. Okay, so <clears throat> Gus, the, the Gus and Wally show is extremely similar to Mission Hill, except that instead of having so much Kevin and Andy, there's a more Gus and Wally and a little less Kevin and Andy. But this, it's still basically the same show. Um, the other thing that we have in that show, though, is flashbacks. Because Gus and Wally have been in Mission Hill since the late 1950s. And, and obviously the other guys haven't been there nearly so long. So, um, it, what happens is that there's a little bit more history of Mission Hill, of Gus and Wally, and it's kind of look at the look, uh, look at alternative lifestyles in America from the late 50s to 2000, uh, as well. So there's like, you know, there's beatniks and there's hippies and there's the whole 70s thing. And, and Gus and Wally are, we're going to see them through the ages in these flashbacks. Now, again, that won't be a lot of the show. It will be some of the show. Anyway, right. so we're working on that right now. And we've got this, we're very, very excited about it. But there's a long, this kind of thing is a long process. And we've already been working sure. for seven months with Warner Brothers just to try to make the deal to make it happen. And even then, then we have to go find some place to broadcast it or air it or stream it. So right. th none of that is, is by any means guaranteed. But I hope that, uh, I'm hoping that it happens because it's my favorite thing that we've ever done. Right. Well, you know, I, I've i noticed, um, especially with some podcasts like the Talking Simpsons guys uh, talking a lot about Mission Hill, um, that 
you know, I've seen a lot of people sort of ex really excited about the idea, uh, people that are just finding the show, um, and things yeah. like that. So I, I hope it, I hope it happens and, uh, you know, best of luck with that. I'm excited to see. Thank what, you. Me what, too. Me too. Yeah, I, I am awesome. very excited about it. And we did actually the plug talking Simpsons. Josh and I did a huge, uh, uh, podcast with them, um, about the whole thing, which I believe they'll be releasing sometime real soon. Oh, that's awesome. I'm a huge, huge day one fan of that podcast as well. So if Bob, Henry, if either one of you are watching this, OBR, uh, shout out to you guys. Awesome, awesome work you do over there. Um, all right, Bill. So you have long said that season three of The Simpsons is the greatest season of television ever. Um, yes. If you had to narrow it down, how would you support that claim to someone who had never seen uh, The Simpsons or never seen that season of The Simpsons? The, you know, I want to say that this is not, that's not like a brag. We didn't work on The Simpsons in season three. That was when we were watching, when we were huge fans. We got hired at the very tail end of season three, early season four. And that was when we were like, we had become giant fans of the show at that point. And so watching it, the thing about it is it's just, it has, I think everybody knows that in the first season of The Simpsons, they were still trying to kind of figure out the way that it went. Even though that was the highest rated season by far, it still didn't have like the polish and the depth of character that the later seasons, that's the way with the ball TV shows pretty much. So, right. and the second season had a somewhat of, second season also excellent, but the third season was when it was like, everybody knew exactly how to write for the characters. Everybody knew about the universe of Springfield and they also had the perfect mix. Like they had the perfect mix of really sincere episodes, heartfelt episodes that made you tear up and also the freaking baseball episode. Like they, they really mixed it up very well. And they yeah. also had like a sideshow Bob episode. They had an scratchy episode, I think. Um, and, and all that kind of stuff. So when we took over the show, we just sat down and like, we're like, okay, what did they do? They had six, they had seven Homer episodes. They had four Bart episodes. They had one sideshow Bob. They had one, um, they had one itching scratchy. That's what we're going to do. So I we did it exactly the same way and basically just sort of copied that. Like we didn't copy the stories obviously, but we are like, this is the mixture. This is the golden mixture. So that was, yeah. and what, and why do I, I insist that that's true? It's because. I don't think you could, there's, that's a, it's pretty much a bulletproof season. Every episode is terrific and there's so much innovation going on, um, that, you know, really like brought the show into what it is and what we all know it as. Yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's a perfect justification. I, I think it's, um, you know, three is not my favorite season, but I definitely, uh, I think that that, that makes total sense because three, such a launching point for the show moving forward that I think, the things that they started trying in three, at least from a, you know, just a viewing perspective, definitely gave it room to uh, try some new things. And I think that's really cool. They did. And they were pushing, that was when they really started to push the boundaries. Like, oh, that baseball episode. And I remember every time, I don't want to say every time, but many times when people pushed the boundaries of the show, it was really unpopular. Like I remember hearing that we weren't there, but I remember hearing the actors hated, hated that baseball episode, um, you know, because it's not very sincere and it's just kind of funny yeah. and silly. And like, that like and, and we also had that same thing we we experienced that same thing with 22 short films with frank grimes with the george bush episode and all those things like um there's a lot of re resistance to experimenting with the form which i think ultimately people people didn't really like it so much at the time either but now they like it i think yeah I, th I think people eventually come around i mean sometimes people are very precious about a thing you know and and sometimes they Look down the line, yeah. they're like, what's wrong with me? This is so, this is perfect. This is great. Just, you know? just read all TV Simpsons from 1992. And you'll oh see how much people hated every, like, you know, even the absolute bulletproof golden episodes. 
at least thirty percent right. of the people said were the worst episode ever. So that was when so, we stopped. We finally stopped reading it around season right. five, season six. Well, as as someone who was, uh, I was around five or six years old when that season aired, and I was watching it from the time I was like three. Uh, but my brother and I, we were we were all in from the jump. So I remember, you know, at that point being in kindergarten and just it was my my life. You know, I just had to see the Simpsons. Oh, so, yeah. You know, I'm sure to some people they found some things to criticize, but uh, as a young kid, I was it was it was all I wanted to watch. You know, well, there wasn't much on. There wasn't anything else like that on at the time. You know, like it was before King of the Hill, before South Park, and any of that stuff. And like. You know, maybe the Duckman. Duckman was on at that time. Oh. If anybody remembers that, but that was pretty oh, much the I only other, Duckman. only other show that people like that was kind of the quote unquote adult animation that we all know today. Right. It's true. It's true. Um, so, you know, I, you know, this question's coming or something at least touching on this subject. Um, I'm a huge fan of steamed hams. I think every single person watching this um, is a huge fan of, of steamed hams, and I. I know it has really taken on a life of its own that'll surely outlive all of us. Um, and the memes and the content surrounding it have really come back uh, during quarantine. You see a lot of these new ones coming back. Um, the Brick Like Me version and, and things like that. Uh, how much does that stuff blow your mind, seeing the time that people put into some of these things that they make revolving around that scene? It does blow my mind, and recently it was just blown again by that take on me aha one. Oh my and god! So you guys saw that, like, and the guy, the guy, like, took a month animating it. Like, that's amazing. Um, I mean, many of them are like, are stunning in the amount of detail and, and time and effort that is gone into them. Uh, that's like, it does blow my mind. Yes. <laughs> there was a I saw one recently where someone was making like a, almost like a Game Boy like title screen version. I saw that going around, like, I think maybe today or yesterday. Oh yeah. I think I've seen that one too. There's, I mean, there's so many great ones and that one and that one with um, green day or whatever. That's the other one oh, yeah. that I think everybody knows and loves. Um, but there's, there, there are dozens of ones that are terrific. Someone made it with uh Simpsons hit and run. I think they made like, Oh yeah. I didn't see that. Uh, it's, it's just, I mean, you know, I remember a couple years ago, um, maybe maybe two years ago it was everywhere and I feel like since the Brick Like Me one it's just been I've been seeing so many good new ones yeah for anyone who's been living under a rock um, Bill does some of the funniest food review content that I've ever seen um, and I want to talk now about we're getting to the real story <laughs> yeah we're getting to the real story so I want to get into that in just a second but with that said is there a fictional food from the Simpsons that you I uh, would want to try if it was actually on a menu somewhere. Is there anything that you can think of that you would try? Well, first of all, there's a number of um, products. I wouldn't say that it, they'd be on a menu. Like, <laughs> I always really like Chippo's. You know, Chippo's, Josh and I always thought that was so good. And one of the design, one of our many prop designers just came up with that bag of Chippo's, which is, it's the hippo. It's a hippo eating chips. And it's so simple, but it's so, it's so <laughs> believable that I always, we always got a kick out of that and tried to put it in every quickie mart scene or whatever also tub i would really like to try tub once because yeah. you know i know in my mind basically what it is is this giant tub of uh oreo filling that mm. you eat with a spoon or with your fingers <laughs> or whatever it's just <laughs> re repulsive um yeah th that one i also like i would kind of like to try homer simpson's patented space age moon waffle but mm. without so much i don't oh, want yeah. so much butter i don't want so much butter there's a stick of butter in the middle i don't like that but the rest of it, i like the idea and i've thought of this many times of putting liquid smoke in my in my waffles 
it's probably it's probably not bad. I mean, if, if there was if there was a thing that um, I could try just to see how gross it is, it would definitely be nuts and gum. I think about that all the time. It really. I think Josh me. actually tried that. It is gross. It's repulsive. Um, it just, the, the textures don't go together, and they not stick to the gum, and it gets stuck in your mouth. But I'm pretty sure Josh actually tried that a year or two ago and posted about it on Twitter. I mean, I guess I guess nothing's stopping me from throwing some some peanuts and some. Not at all. It's really easy. Um, which reminds me, actually, this isn't. I didn't write this down as a question, but I did want to talk about this for a second. Um, you are a huge proponent of peanuts in Coca Cola. And I just want to say that as someone who grew up doing that, that is delicious. That's very big where I grew up in Mississippi. And we every kid on the playground did that. And it's it's delicious. Yes, it is delicious. And I had never heard of it until Sleepy LaRue, who I think is watching this, uh, who uh, direct messaged me about it or, or something in a conversation. And I, uh, I was like, wow. And I didn't have, I'd never heard of it. And then I, um, I Googled it and it is a thing. It's been a thing obviously for more than a century. Right. in the south and um it, it and i tried it it was really really good so like yeah but like when i did that it blew people's minds because it is a weird thing that you never hear about outside the south and it's and weird it, but it's, it's so good it's also very good in dr pepper that's also that's what I, I heard that from a number of people yes and i'm still eager to try that but i have to go find it i feel like i want to have a glass bottle of dr pepper for yeah. that to happen like i don't want to i don't want a modern plastic bottle i want it i want it old school it's better in, better in the glass. Uh, speaking of weird Southern foods, this sort of takes me off on a tangent, but I gotta, I'm going to ask you this. Did you ever or have you ever heard of the, of the dish, also a very Southern popular dish in the South, of milk and cornbread? Have you ever eaten that? No, I never heard of that. Okay, so, so this is a very popular thing in the South. You can look it up. But you take fresh cornbread, like a wedge of cornbread, and you crumble it up in a glass, and you pour milk over it, and you eat it with a spoon. It sounds like I'm joking, but it's delicious. My grandfather did it when I was a kid. I grew up doing it. Still very. Is it a dessert or is it an entree or an appetizer? Where does it fall in? It's, the... You just sort of. We would always eat it after dinner, but it's not sweet. Um, mm -hmm. It's something about the warm cornbread, especially if you make it in a you know a cast iron skillet, so you have the crunchy. Um, something about the flavors together is just really really good. My wife thinks it's gross, wow. but I'm, right. I'm going to try it next time I make corn. I make cornbread every time I have chili, so I will try it. That sounds good. There you go. It's great. I, w I want you to report back to me on that. I think you'll really right. like it. <laughs> um, secondly, if Krusty Burger were a restaurant in real life in 2020, what do you think it would be the most like? Like as it far would, as all the major <laughs> chains? This is easy. It would be Burger King because Burger King <laughs> is such a disaster. And it would not only be that, it would be the Burger Kings that we have in Portland, which are far worse <laughs> than, than any other ones because well, they're so, well, because they're dilapidated that uh, like, I, I heard a rumor that, that they're basically just waiting until they all fall apart to make them into <laughs> other restaurants like KFCs or whatever. But like our Burger Kings are not new. Are they not those new ones? They're ones from the eighties and they, and the, you know, I actually still like the Whopper. I have to be clear about that, but sure. I don't like most of their food. And I certainly don't like the experience of dining there. Uh, in Portland, some of the there's some new ones out in the suburbs. But in any case, I think it would be obviously Krusty Burger would be the closest to that. But it might also be one of those, um, you know, I guess they phone in. They don't, let me just put it: Krusty Burger doesn't put a lot of effort into their menu or their food. And I'd say Burger King is probably the closest to that right now. Right, that makes sense. I also I've heard you talk about how much you hate their social media presence. <laughs> God, I do. I really do. Like Wendy's is bad with its like snarky Twitter feed. Oh, but like, oh. but. They don't do quite so many stunts. The Burger King every three months does a stunt 
where they are like, we're going to launch this crazy new burger that's purple with whatever. And then you find out, oh, this burger is going to be served for one day at 10 restaurants around America in the morning. <laughs> and, and everybody writes about it. It's all over Twitter. Burger King's doing this crazy thing. And then it turns out that it's a stunt. And they never, it's all stunts with them, and they never bother to improve the food. That uh, makes sense. And, and also, for someone who updated a lot of their restaurants across the country, a lot of them look more dated than the ones that didn't really mess <laughs> with the design. It's a pretty awful, pretty awful design. Um, so with that said about food review, how did you fall into the world of food review? How did you start sort of on that, that journey to making these videos and this content that we, we all enjoy? You know, I've, I've always been interested in this type of thing um, all the way back to when I was a kid and never got to have any McDonald's because it was nearest almost 70 miles away. So like, I've always been very interested in this and I've always been, basically I've kind of expressed my opinion to anyone who would listen <laughs> and people on Twitter. And then about two years ago when they uh, launched, McDonald's launched their fresh beef quarter pounder. That was like uh, May 2018. I went because I wanted to be the first one to have it. So I went right in the morning and I was going to just tweet some sentences about it. But then I was like, well, maybe I should just film something because like, you know, it, a, a couple sent a couple sentences are very anodyne and are not going to entertain anybody. And so I filmed something and it basically was me trying this. My very first one was me trying this and going like, it's a very slight improvement. And I think people found that the dead, my dead, I was completely sincere. I didn't intend for it to be <laughs> funny, but people like found it amusing and like McDonald's saw it and, and were like, Hey, this is launching McDonald's Twitter account was like, now you're launching your career as a food blogger. And I was like, Hey, maybe I should do that. And the head chef from McDonald's saw it. And so anyway, I, I kept doing them um, after this, basically because um, they, people were interesting people were enjoying them and I was enjoying making them. And so I still, you know, basically it's been a long journey over the past two years where I've made, I've nearly made a hundred of them and they obviously slowed to a crawl during this pandemic. Um, and I'm doing a lot more at home stuff. Uh, my Instagram story is loaded with stuff almost every day of stuff like my homemade Arby's. Um, <laughs> that was a whole different thing, but that was my most popular Instagram story ever last week. That was, was my awesome. homemade Arby's. Um, and Arby's themselves retweeted it, which I thought was nice because like I'm telling people to make Arby's at home anyway. So that's, that's cool. Anyway, uh, you know, my goal is to be the kind of person who gets to be a judge on Chopped or some show like that on the Food Network. <laughs> and I don't think I'm maybe I'm not too far away from that, but a couple more years of this and then I'll get invited, perhaps. Yeah, no, I, I don't think you're too far away from that at all. I think um, there are people on a lot of those shows that are they don't hold a candle to your videos, Bill. So don't worry. I'm, I'm your you. I'm, I'm a big supporter of what you're doing. Thank That's you. great. My videos, um, you know, I'll say the best thing about my videos from a viewer's perspective is that they're short like yeah. they're they're less than a minute and like the thing is that there's hundreds of people doing fast food reviews on on youtube and many of them who are who have a million followers or whatnot but their videos are always 10 minutes long which is for me nine minutes too long for this kind of stuff oh yeah well you know i think i think some people just want like the format of instagram is almost perfect for that because they can right. see it they can get your opinion and then they don't have to feel like they got to like find time to sit down or pull up pull over to watch it right um, 50, I love that the limit of video on Instagram is 59 seconds. I think that's a really good limit. And so many times I've wanted to make my videos longer than that. But then I was like, nah, if I cut it down to 59, it's going to be better. The, being forced right. to cut it down makes makes it better. It's cool. Yeah, I, I like that too. Um, so, you know, with, with, with the food review talk, um, I am happy to announce that we're actually going to have a, a live Bill Oakley food review right now. And, you know, this is the <laughs> special kind of content that you can expect from these these fantastic videos that I'm doing here. Um, 
Bill's gonna Bill's gonna review something for us right now. So this is an exclusive. Yes, this is exciting. Uh, this is exciting. Okay, yeah, take it away. Everybody, people, every. Okay, I was a little too old to really love this product when it came out. However, I did like it, and I did have it several times. Um, a number of people are. This is like the best food of their childhood. It's Dunkaroos. If you remember Dunkaroos, uh, from uh, people who are night who are quote unquote nineties kids. Love these yeah. things apparently. Like, it, I like this. Look at how many Instagram followers the Dunkaroos account has, and you will see what like this beloved. Anyway, it was gone for like twenty years, and and people were it was one of those legendary lost foods that people pine for, and they finally brought it back, uh, like a month ago, and I right. was able to get one of the first packages out of the door, and I'm going to try it now. I have never tried it. I haven't tried these since the '90s. Um, so we're going to open it. Here we go, awesome. live. <laughs> okay, now didn't they weren't they like like Teddy Graham type? Weren't the shape of the crackers different? I think the they were shaped different? like kangaroos. Right, right. Now yeah. here they're like round. I don't know why. Okay, so here we go. Here's the open. There they are, right there. Yeah, they were kangaroo shaped, I think. And so here we are. What is this on there? It's a, what is that? I can't even tell what that is. What? That's a D. Oh, D for kangaroos. Yeah, yeah. So okay. So this whole package. So it's filled with these little cookies that are shaped like this. I'm going to try a cookie first. Okay, these are your standard like butter cookie flavor, you know, kind of not like a sugar cookie, but like a Lorna Dune or something like that. Standard butter cookie, like or kind of like the the vanilla Teddy Grahams. And see down here, we have our stuff to dip it into. Now these I think were inspired by those things. Okay, so there's an ew. Wait, <laughs> are, are there supposed to be those blue dots in there? Everybody. I think so. I think it's, okay. Yeah, okay. I, I seem to remember okay. that. Okay. I thought that might be mold. <laughs> All right. So okay. So you dip those in here, and this is like frosting, but I guess it's got little little um, uh, you know, uh, some sort of little flavor. Yeah, confetti in there. Okay. <laughs> so here we go. All right. Let's see what we got. Ooh, that's really good. I like that a lot. I mean, it's so fake tasting. It really tastes like it's a hundred percent chemicals, but <laughs> it's. It's delicious. Like this is exact. It's very similar to that frosting that you get in a can, you know, to put on cupcakes or whatever. It's yeah. identical to that. This is not a big surprise, to be honest. And I believe that, as I read online, people don't think it's quite as good as it was uh, in the '90s because of this extremely fake tasting. And I don't remember it being quite so egregious. Yeah, but it's, it's still been good. a really long time. <laughs> I, I feel like that happens with most things they bring back. Like I seem to feel like when when they brought Surge back, it didn't really taste. The way it tasted when I was a kid. When I was a kid, it tasted like nuclear, you know, something. <laughs> All right. Well, I would say that these are pretty good. I would give them a, a B or B plus. Mm. They're certainly they're. I mean, uh, they're certainly extremely processed and fake tasting. But if you don't mind that, which I don't, they're good. And I actually would. I'm going to have trouble not eating this whole thing, so I'm going to put it away here. <laughs> that's that's what I'm talking about. So a B plus on the Dunkaroos. You guys, yeah. Here. Here first. That's good. It's good stuff. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna have to go get a pack of those now. Now I'm super curious. Um, no, it's, it's so, that generally, snack food does not taste as fake as this these days. Like most snack food has a little bit doesn't taste as loaded with chemicals, and this does. This really tastes like it's loaded, loaded with chemicals, and it's entirely a fake. Very it's like, long ingredients. Yeah, taste. yeah. So, um, but so, but. That's a throwback. It's a throwback to the '90s when people weren't so worried about their um, about health. It's true. And adulterated foods. <laughs> it's true. It's true. So, so I'm a huge advocate 
for uh, newer and current Simpsons, but I can say without a doubt that the era that you and Josh were writing and working as showrunners on The Simpsons um, is easily my favorite, season six being my, my absolute favorite season. That's why my name is Bart of Darkness on this account. Um, no deep reason. It's just first episode, season six, so why not? Um, what is it like after all these years to hear people talk about your time on the show and, and how that time for them is very either their favorite or just very special to them. What is that like for you now? I would say it's somewhat rewarding because at the time we had no idea. Like it, it, I cannot tell you how different it was to work on TV shows back then because there was no, people did not generally have the internet. There was no Twitter. You never had any contact with the outside world because there, you didn't know what other people were like at that point, like critics only review shows once a year. Like maybe some critics would review The Simpsons once a year, once every two years. And their opinion didn't really matter anyway. But you never had any idea what the fans thought. And the ratings were not dependent on the quality of the show. The ratings were always dependent on what was going on, what was on the other channels, you know, at that time and so forth. So we had no idea whether people were enjoying the show or not. Um, you sometimes hear from your friends like, oh, that was a funny episode. But that was it. So we were broadcasting this stuff into a void. And we didn't know whether people were liking it. So we just wrote the show the way that we wanted to write it to amuse ourselves. And uh, fortunately, I would say now we're learning or, or over the past 10 years, we've learned that people really liked it. So it's very satisfying. It's awesome. Yeah, there's something, you know, that, and that's why I said, you know, I agree with everything you said about season three. But six, for whatever reason, sort of five and six, which sometimes I, I almost blend those episodes together. Sometimes I think one from five is in six and, and vice versa. Um, something about the vibe of those seasons, I hate the word vibe, but there's just something in the tone of the writing in those seasons that resonates with me uh, even more as an adult. And, uh, you know, so as a big fan of, of you and Josh, uh, I want to say thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. I mean, I would say, like, the thing is, I can't really take credit for anything that happened in season five or six, except for the episodes that we wrote. Because at that point, Josh and I were kind of... Uh, Basically, we spent all our time in our office writing our own episodes. Um, you know, it was David Murphy kind of let us do that, which was really nice. Um, cool. And so, like, all year long, we didn't really have that much to do with any of the episodes that we didn't write. Uh, although, we, the ones we wrote, I mean, they, in many cases, they were pretty, they were broadcast pretty similar to what we turned in. So, um, it was, I can't really take credit for almost anything that happened in season five or six, except for the ones we wrote, which I can take a lot of credit for. We, Josh, well, I can take a lot of credit for. Right, right. Well, and I, you know, and I would say the same thing about the seasons that you show ran, you know, seven and eight, I, I feel very similar about, it. I think that whole block just has a tone that sort of, you know, is special, stands on its own. So, um, yeah, I feel, I feel that way I have for, since I was a kid. Um, and I also have to tell you that, you know, speaking of season five, uh, Lisa versus Malibu Stacy is one of my all time favorite episodes of the show. Um, you know, and I've heard you talk about the inspiration for that episode a little bit. Uh, but for those who don't know, could you touch on it? And also, what was it like meeting the person with the largest Barbie collection in the world? Oh, I never met that guy. Oh, you did <laughs> Like, I See, just knew I about it. You met that guy. No. I don't think <laughs> I ever did. I don't know. You know, it was inspired by that whole thing at that time, which was the Barbie Liberation Fund, which was this thing that it was an actual... Most of the incident, most of the things... Um, you know, were uh, inspired by things we read in USA Today. To be honest, in <laughs> many of those episodes, like USA Today had this section of things that, like, across the nation. 
and and like you know you have little news report from every state and i think our gambling one was inspired by this thing about legalized gambling in you know mississippi or something and right. that was inspired by this thing it was also that i was familiar with this because my wife had a collection of barbies uh, at the time and so i kind of knew a little bit about the collector world but like um it was inspired by a specific incident which was this thing where these uh, I guess I would say they were activists, went, went into Toys R Us and sw swapped the voice boxes between the G.I. Joes and the Barbies. <laughs> and it got a lot of press because it was very entertaining and very amusing. And I think it was a subject of a lot of like late night jokes. And we were like, hey, that's a good idea. And also, and I'll say this is the other secret to writing Simpsons episodes at that time was like, hey, here's a product <laughs> that occurs in our universe. Like Duff, this is how I suspect what happened with the Duff thing. Let's do an episode about Duff where they go to the Duff beer plant. And then that whole thing is, like, I was like, what? I think we just were like, what other products exist in this universe? Well, there's the Malibu Stacy doll. And hey, this doesn't that fit neatly into the story about the Barbie liberation front? And it seems like uh, once you get those pieces together, the story almost writes itself to some extent. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take that up with Wikipedia because Wikipedia Bill, claims that you met uh, the world's largest Barbie collector at a convention. <laughs> Me. I might have. I don't remember. That was a long time ago. <laughs> That's a pretty pretty deep cut. I was actually kind of uh, when I was reading that, I was like, "How is this a story I've never heard?" So who knows? Maybe <laughs> maybe maybe someone added that for you. Um, I might have said it in the DVD commentary, source. which was like oh, that was years ago. My my memory is probably better back when I recorded the DVD commentary. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. But you're a busy guy, Bill. You know, you got a lot. You got a lot of stuff to. Uh, yeah, a I can lot really of put some stuff in my head. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk a little bit about who shot Mr. Burns. Um, I think, you know, those two episodes would be near the top of, of any list for anyone. Um, if they were making a best, you know, top 20, top hundred, whatever, it's going to be near the top. Um, and I know that there were a lot of secrets that you guys had to keep in between seasons since you had the part one at the end of six, part two, at the beginning of seven. Um, what was that experience like for you? Like, was that, I'm sure that was unlike anything you had ever done in, in writing, keeping a secret like that. Well, interestingly, people didn't really care. Like the thing about it is we didn't have to keep the secret because people weren't trying to find out the solution. Like that's the ah. thing like that. Um, as I said, it was a weird environment where there was not there was no if the Internet had existed, people would have been far more interested in trying to find the solution. But at the time, as I said, it was a very cloistered environment where we were on the studio a lot. We never had any interaction with the rest of the world or even heard what they thought. So it wasn't hard to keep this. I mean, like all, we didn't. We made the scripts, the scripts did not have the last 10 pages. And so like, and then we shredded the scripts and stuff like that. And ah. David Merkin, who was a showrunner, handled all that stuff. Like we didn't handle the production. He recorded privately with Harry. He recorded the two alternate endings. This is all on the DVD. And so it, I don't think it was a big, like it was not hard to keep the secret. Although, you know, we had to keep it from the animators. So the, that's why they animated those eight different endings. Um, or just, just a few, so people, the animators didn't know which ending was going to be used. Um, but also people weren't really trying to find out, like, this is the thing, like, there weren't like people trying to break into the lot to find out the script or calling us up. <laughs> people didn't know and, and, and people didn't care. I think the thing is that's Merkin tells the story on the DVD. I think where he was trying to stir up publicity for this thing. And I think he called the national Enquirer and said, and was trying to get a fake story. And do you know this story? He was no, trying to, actually. he was trying to stir up some publicity. And I think he called, I believe he called the national Enquirer and said, you know, I have I have leaked material that exposes who shot Mr. Burns, and the person was like, "Oh, we don't want to, we don't want to expose that. We don't." The National Enquirer did not want 
to spoil the story. So they declined his offer of leaked material. And so like, that was basically it. Like people weren't, people were not trying to break into our office to find out the solution. Nobody cared really. I think kids cared. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, those, you know, though, I know when they did the VHS sets in the nineties, well before they did the DVDs, it was like the best of VHS sets. I'm sure some people in the comments remember this, but you had to, uh, or actually that was the first place that they were together, like back to back before there were DVDs. You could watch them on one. There was like these little three VHS sets. Yeah. Yeah. I remember one of them that. had them back to back on there. It had like some of the Tracy Ullman shorts and things like that on there as well. And ads and those, those, those VHSs actually really hold up. I have them. I've actually been trying to find an old, uh, like one of those old TVs with a VHS built in. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I could just have one like on a, on a thing I can turn on in this room, but uh those those tapes are cool that was like the easiest way to watch them back then yeah it's crazy um let's see so obviously um i'm a collector uh it's the whole point of this instagram it's why i've been trying to to make this stuff and uh i always like to find out how people who worked on the show remember that time like if they were aware of the merch if they were going into stores and seeing the floor to ceiling t-shirt displays and the toys all over the place and if they have a memory of that and what that was like for them did you ever really care about the merch did you look to that stuff at all interestingly there was a pit like the merch there was a weird time like right when the show first started let me make this clear there was a long period when there was virtually no merchandise the, when the show first started there was a huge avalanche of mostly substandard merchandise that appeared in like toys R Us, and there were these figure there were the, the plastic figures there were the trading cards, which were really bad trading cards, and, and a whole bunch oh, of yeah. other junk that came out right when the show started in the first season. And lots of t that was when the t-shirts that said underachiever and crowded. Okay. So then that gradually, there was a huge burst of that excitement. And it was a lot of it was around, you know, Christmas time, 89 and Christmas and, and throughout 1990. Then it gradually just went, and there was no <laughs> merchandise again for a very long time until like season 10 or 11 or 12. Um, the, and what there, what there was, was a very minimal, like we were always kind of like, we get stuff off eBay. Like there wasn't that much merchandise coming out. There was a Simpsons chess set, which also yeah. was like, what the heck? like that's one of the ones we had in the <laughs> office. And there was like other stuff like, you know, tie neckties and, um, and the golf ball. I remember this golf. We didn't have any merchandise at that point. Like there were guys who had been there in the first and second season, they had pinball machines. They actually oh, yeah. got every writer at that time had a pinball machine that they had been given by the company of those original with just terrific pinball machines. But then, like so, when we got there, you, there was nothing. You didn't get anything. And I remember this thing because everyone was we wanted Simpsons merchandise, but there just simply wasn't any. And I remember this thing because we didn't also we also never got it for free. I remember this very specific moment where Matt Groening came into the writers' room with the box of Simpsons golf balls. This is the kind of merchandise they had at the time, and and <laughs> oh, yeah. everybody's everybody's like we were excited because we like. He handed the, every, each writer, he handed a golf ball. They're like, well, here's a golf ball with Wigan on it. Here's a golf ball with a movie man on it. And we were all like, oh, thank you. Thank you. This is exciting. And then he took them all back and put them in a box and left. And everybody, we had thought we were going to be given the golf balls for free, but we did not get any. And then also, that's, we that's didn't get crazy. like, we didn't get free stuff in general very much. Like the Simpsons cells that we have, we had to pay for those and they're four or 500 bucks a piece um, yeah. at that time. So, like, like, I would say we didn't. And also, it was even a huge fight to get us free DVDs. That was a thing that Merkin did. That Fox did not want to give us free DVDs, even though they were DVDs of shows that we had written and recorded the commentaries on. And they cost like $12. Yeah. 
Right. It was a big fight that Merkin had to have to get the writers a free box of DVDs for the seasons they worked on. That, so let's just say the there weren't a lot of, uh, they're not a very generous operation. Right. That's, that's so wild. The golf balls actually have a few, uh, some sets of those. I think Spalding made them. Uh, and also the, the weird thing about that time, especially around the mid nineties is a lot of stuff they were making. They were making a lot of stuff in Australia and the UK, but it was mostly like bath products and shampoos and, and just yes. stuff that like, you know, it's very obscure stuff. The toys were sort of at a standstill in the mid nineties. Well, I rem a lot. remember, I think most of the good Simpsons merchandise didn't come out until after after I had left the show, which is when they started making those really good figures. Oh, you yeah. know, the whole series of those figures, those are all such, they're all so high stuff. But the only one I actually still have is Chalmers, which is my favorite character. <laughs> but those are like, that's when the good merchandise started. And I think there was some sort of reckoning in the toy industry, like around the late 90s, early 2000s, where people started making collectible stuff for grownups, like, and yeah. as opposed to just junky crap for little kids. Like, and yeah. so these collectible, those things, all the good merchandise didn't really start coming out until after we had left the show. And so I had to buy all my own. Yeah, the world, the world of Springfield stuff is great. I, I would object to, I actually, some of the worst, most inefficient toys are some of my favorites, which I don't know why, that's just the way I am. But I love the world of Springfield line. I have the whole thing. I was actually going to show you a Chalmers uh, because I wasn't sure if you, if you had him. But um, with that said, I want to say, you know, huge thank you to you for not just doing this live. Uh, but for helping me with the raffle a couple months back and and just being so kind when you respond to fans and you you know you've helped me track down the origin of a couple items and i just i i have nothing but uh respect for you and what you do and you're you're just a great you're a great representation of the show and uh i can't say thank you enough man yep. thank you thank you for all those kind words it's my <laughs> pleasure uh to help you out and uh i also appreciate your plugging of my various uh projects including mission hill and my uh Instagram fast food reviews. Absolutely. Well, again, I want to say at the end of this, anyone who's not watching uh, close enough, uh, it's Sunday at almost three o'clock if you're on the East Coast. And uh, I'm sure you got nothing better to do uh, uh, during this uh, hell that we're all living in. So you should go watch the whole thing today. I think that's what everyone should do. It's a very funny project. And I, I it's the only thing that I've, I've worked on that is currently, available, that is currently out. So <laughs> even though I worked on it four and a half years ago, do check it out and it's not i only have a tiny bit to do with that show honestly it's jg's baby but i was happy to be involved uh, and in fact they sent me a puzzle <laughs> they oh, sent yeah. me a puzzle but it's actually holding up my phone right now so i'm not gonna okay <laughs> uh anyway uh it's been a pleasure i hope we can do this again sometime if you're not already it. following me on instagram which i assume you probably are if you're seeing this you should if you're interested in things about food um otherwise you can follow me on twitter for news about uh, our mission hill adventure and other things i'm working on which um hopefully will be out in the next year or so cool that's awesome well what i'm hoping to do as i line up these interviews and do things like this uh like bill and my interview with yardley if any of you saw it is i would also like to eventually do a follow-up and maybe ask some more fan questions which i'll have people submit to me and i'll sort of pick some good ones and so you know down the line if you would if you'd be down to come back bill i'd love to have you on man absolutely i'll see everybody later bye-bye everybody thanks bill later If you enjoyed this podcast, check out the official Instagram at Simpsons is greater than, or follow me on Twitter at Simpsons is great. If you're curious about me or my Simpsons collection, just search for Bart of Darkness on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for checking this out. I'll see you next week.